Welcome to the Dyad Presents, a video game music podcast. I'm the Dyad, and these are Vikings. to pass this way, nor shall you be the last. Those who seek the spirit of Norway face peril and adventure, but more often find beauty and charm. We have always lived with the sea, so look first to the spirit of the seafarer. Long ago, Norway was a land of Vikings. That was the beginning of our love. This week we'll be focusing on tracks from Viking games, or sometimes Viking-related games. I'd say that we're at peak Vikings in media now, so why don't we see what we can find in some video games? In fact, there's actually a ton of modern video games for Vikings. Dozens popped up in my searching. Of course, that's going to include things like the iOS-exclusive Viking Farm Cutesy 2000. But who's to say that that doesn't have great music? And actually, while I did see some games like that, most of them are just really somber sepia simulators. A lot of the music is pretty menacing and moody and doesn't really fit on the show. But I do have plenty of other cool stuff to play. Bringing us in this week is the game Prophecy 1, The Viking Child. From the Amiga, composed by Barry Leach, it's the level 1 music from the Village stage. I'm not sure if it actually has an exact title, but I wasn't able to find one. After that, you had my own personal rendition of Maelstrom. Viking Child is a cartoony platformer released by Imagitech Design Limited in 1991 for the Amiga, Atari ST, Atari Lynx, Game Boy, and MS-DOS. Depending on the region, the game was also referred to as simply Viking Child. Also planned were a series of ports and a sequel, but they were mostly scrapped in their early stages. In the game you play as a Viking Child, trying to free his friends and family held by the evil god Loki inside the Great Halls of Valhalla. I read a snippet from composer Barry Leach jokingly referring to the child as Brian, 
and I saw that it made its way into Wikipedia as canon, so that's kind of funny. As far as reception of the game, with the exception of Amiga Power, the game had fairly favorable critical reviews. It seemed to be a fan favorite too. Many of the user reviews that I read compared it to Wonder Boy and Monsterland, and they were almost universally positive. So hey, if you're looking for an Abandonware platformer, um, in my research on the game, I saw that's pretty widely available on the internet. It seems pretty well liked and it's possibly a hidden gem, so check it out. As for the meat of the show, the Vikings were Norse seafarers, originating in what is now Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. In the beginning, the Vikings were overwhelmingly rural with almost no towns at all. The vast majority farmed or fished to survive, but technological improvements in the 7th and 8th centuries meant that boats were powered by sails rather than solely by oars. This led to the creation of longships, which could navigate coastal waters and land on foreign beaches. It's not clear exactly what first compelled men to cross the North Sea in the longships. It may have been localized overpopulation as their plots of land became subdivided to the point where their families could barely survive. It may also have been political instability as chieftains fought for dominance. Or it may have been rumors of the riches to be found in the trading settlements to the west. Most scholars think that it was most likely a combination of all three. Whatever the cause, in the year 793, the first raiding party hit Lindisfarne. Within a few years, Viking bands had also struck Scotland, Ireland, and France. The Viking name came later, becoming popularized by the 11th century and possibly deriving from the word Vike, which in the Old Norse language the Vikings spoke means bay or inlet. It's not going to be exclusive Viking information today, but I do have a lot more to say about them. So let's take a break and get back into the music. From the game, Eric the Viking, on the Nintendo Entertainment System and Famicom, composed by Neil Baldwin. This is New Dawn, Eric's theme.
Eric the Viking has a bunch of really cool songs on the OST. I think people probably remember it for the track Peace in the Harbor, as the seagull sound effects and ocean waves really stand out. And I was actually going to play that track as well, but combined, the two would have been like seven minutes long. And I have a feeling less people are familiar with the theme itself. We'll probably hear from the game again, though. I really like Neil Baldwin's NES work, and this was his final effort on the system. The NES version of Eric the Viking is an unreleased game that was set to debut around 1992. Developed by Eurocom, the game was based on the Terry Jones book-slash-film Eric the Viking. Also, not to be confused with the Saga of Eric the Viking game, a text-based adventure developed by Level 9 Computing and published by Mosaic Publishing in 1984. The adventure game came out on the Amstrad CPC, the BBC Model B, which I've never even heard of, the Commodore 64, and the ZX Spectrum. From all accounts, it was a pretty typical text adventure game. According to Neil Baldwin, the NES version was loosely based on Norse mythology, so the core of the story was rich with ideas for a game, and they turned it into a Zelda-style RPG. Providing some insight into the cancellation of the game, Baldwin had this to say, We were producing the game for their now-defunct Japanese publisher, Video Systems, and had pretty much completed the whole game. However, geographical and language problems made the testing and bug-finding phase frustratingly difficult. We were almost solely reliant on the publisher for finding bugs slash issues simply because there was only four of us trying to deliver this fairly large and complicated game, and we didn't speak Japanese, and they didn't speak much English. It made for an interesting process. Even I had to get involved in map building and putting together trigger slash behavior scripts for the game's events, as well as writing all the music. It was all good fun though, and the last version of the game that we submitted to the publisher was in great shape and actually good fun to play. Also in the same post, Baldwin admits to creating the NSF file for this soundtrack. He says that he still had the music binary files, and thankfully he released his work to the public. How cool is that? This guy is great. As for the source material, The Saga of Eric the Viking is a 1983 children's book written by Monty Python alum Terry Jones. The book later inspired a comedy fantasy movie simply called Eric the Viking, released in 1989. The film version was both written and directed by Terry Jones, but the plot is completely different from the books. The film is largely parody based on Norse mythology. In the film's opening scene, Eric, played by Tim Robbins, a young Viking, discovers that he has no taste for rape and pillage. He suffers guilt over the death of an innocent woman. From a short synopsis on IMDb, Eric the Viking gathers warriors from his village and sets out on a dangerous journey to Valhalla to ask the gods to end the Age of Ragnarok and allow his people to see sunlight again. A Python-esque satire of Viking life. As far as inspiring the soundtrack to the game, another interesting tidbit from Neil Baldwin. This has nothing to do with the film itself. I think I was just being a bit self-indulgent. Okay, here's an admission. I once saw a documentary about the work of old film composers, the likes of Bernstein, Bernard Herrmann, etc. I'm pretty sure it was Bernard Herrmann who said that a common trick he used when coming up with themes for his scores was to use the meter of the words in the title of the film. This idea stuck with me for years, and I always wanted to have go. This track was my attempt to do that. If you listen to the melody, it follows the meter of Eric the Viking, Strange, but true. Getting back to music, I'll be playing a double feature from an SNES game and its sequel. Most listeners probably expected to hear from this franchise once they heard the theme of the show. And for good reason. The music is banging, and the game is really fun. First, from The Lost Vikings, composed by Charles Deenan, the track is called Factory Beat. Then, from The Lost Vikings 2, Norse by Norse West, Composed by Glenn Stafford, the track is called Dark Ages.
soundtracks were originally composed for the SNES, but each game saw ports to a number of different systems. I don't think the original system is always the best version, but I think both of these games feel at home on the SNES. The Lost Vikings is a puzzle platformer that lets the player alternate controls of three main characters, Olaf, Eric, again, and Balog. Each Viking has unique abilities that are required to solve the different puzzles, and sometimes the only solution is to combine multiple characters' strengths to get to the next stage. This is one of the few games that I have picked music from that I've played and even beat. I can still remember that the password for the last stage is MSTR. If you haven't played this game, I definitely recommend it. I think it's fairly unusual. Puzzle platformer is not something that you see that often, and I really don't have a good grasp on whether this was popular or not. It's one of those games that you just own as a kid and play the crap out of. I think the reason my parents bought me this game is that there were three characters and I have two younger brothers. We had a multi-tap, so I'm guessing that my parents assumed that all three of us could play at the same time. And while you might think that would be the case, it isn't. You can play with two players, but there are parts of the game that require you to use one of the characters and have the screen follow it while some other character does something else. And I guess it just wouldn't really function with three different players. I don't know. I guess maybe it was just extra work they didn't want to program. As for more of the historical details, the game was released in 1992 but saw ports for the Amiga, Amiga CD32, MS-DOS, and Mega Drive slash Genesis systems the following year. Genesis version even has five extra stages that aren't included in any of the other versions of the game. So I guess that's five things Sega do that Nintendo don't. Blizzard later re-released the game for the Game Boy Advance in 2003, and in 2014 the game was added to Battle.net as a free download emulated through DOSBox. When I was trying to pull music from the game, I encountered a technical challenge that I found to be interesting. Generally speaking, the SPC format is used to hold SNES game music. It's named after Sony's SPC 700 contribution to the SNES's SSMP audio chip. And unlike most other console music formats, SPC doesn't actually store the sound code, but instead it stores the memory of the extrapolated music files sent to the SSMP chip. Usually this makes it much easier to rip music for games. In fact, it's not really ripping it at all. One of the disadvantages is because of the SSMP's somewhat modest 64 kilobyte limit, some games dynamically altered the memory during the course of a song. This allowed for tracks to break or at least finesse their way past the memory limitations. I read that the most common method is to swap samples in and out on the fly. And while this may have helped composers reach new heights, any static dumps of the SSMP's memory don't include those variable changes to tracks. Therefore, any games that use this technology won't be played properly. How it really rears its ugly head is when an SPC dump can't be made at all for games that use the SSMP chip in a non-standard way. The Lost Vikings is one such game. There is a different file format for games that can't use the easy SPC dumps. It's called Super Nintendo Sound Format, or SNSF, and it's really more similar to the NSF format for NES games. An SNSF file contains the actual computer code necessary to play the music which has been extracted from the SNES ROM. Again, this is compared to the SPC format which only creates a log of the Super Nintendo's sound memory. By ripping the actual sound code, the SNSF format can house every SNES soundtrack. But logging an SPC file is easy, while ripping to SNSF is really difficult. Because of this, only a few games have even been ripped to SNSF. I would say that the most notable is the Chrono Trigger soundtrack, but more importantly to today's episode is the SNSF file for The Lost Vikings. Anyway, I hope I spoke with some degree of clarity there. I know it's not the easiest thing to follow, and it's probably even less easy to follow when you're just listening to some dude drone on about it. As far as the sequel, The Lost Vikings 2 is more of the same. Another puzzle platformer developed by Blizzard and published by Interplay. Subtitled Norse by Norse West, the game came out three years after the original. 
It has the three original Viking characters, plus new playable ones in Fang the Werewolf and Scorch the Dragon. Also worth mentioning, the Viking characters all have new or modified abilities. Throwing a werewolf and a dragon in with some Vikings seems like kind of a precursor to internet robot ninja monkey cheese, but hey, whatever works. I actually haven't played the sequel, so I don't know if there's a story reason for them or not. Like I mentioned earlier, the game was developed for the SNES, but this time around it saw ports to the Sega Saturn, PlayStation, and PC. The Super Nintendo version stuck with the 16-bit sprites, but the remaining systems saw pre-rendered 3D graphics, CD music, and extensive voice acting. And every fiber of my being is telling me to go off on a tangent about Norse by Norse West. But I've barely talked about Vikings yet, and I don't know. We'll have to save it for another day, I guess. Moving on to a system we haven't heard from in a while, the Commodore 64. From the game Myth, History in the Making, composed by one of the hardware's masters, Yoroen Tell, this is the title theme.
Myth, History in the Making is a 2D platform game developed and published by System 3 for the Commodore 64, Amiga, Amiga CD32, Amstrad CPC, and the ZX Spectrum. The main character in the game is a teenage boy from the 20th century who one day falls through a tear in the space-time continuum and is transported to the Time of Legends. He's rescued by a high priestess who tells him that their world is under attack from Dameron, the Dark Angel of Time. If the kid is to have any hope of ever getting home, Dameron must be destroyed. A later Amiga version was released and featured a fairly similar scenario, but changes to the player character were made. He was renamed Ankalagen, a mystical warrior from the year 63 AD. He uses the powers of Stonehenge to travel in time and combat evil through the ages. But wait, I can hear you say, I'm not seeing anything about Vikings. Well, for starters, the game has levels dealing with different mythologies, from ancient Greece to the Vikings and Valhalla. In fact, the player must face the hammer-wielding Thor. But if that isn't enough, the game was later ported to the NES as Conan, the Mysteries of Time. Conan, you say? He's not a Viking. Well, first, why are you so critical? I think this is probably affecting your relationships. I'm trying to build something special together. Can you just let a few things slide? Thank you. But second, allow me to perform my tangent jitsu. The character of Conan the Barbarian was created by Robert E. Howard in 1932 via a series of fantasy stories published in Weird Tales magazine. A periodical, not Alan, that also featured the work of H.P. Lovecraft, a friend and regular correspondent of Howard's. Conan's stories take place in the fictional Hyborian Age, set after the destruction of Atlantis, but before the rise of known ancient civilizations. What's interesting to me is that the invention of the Hyborian Age was due to the anticipated difficulties and time-consuming research work needed to maintain historical accuracy. What I find even more interesting is that a large part of this was because of the poorly stacked libraries in the rural part of Texas where Howard lived. For whatever reason, this struck a chord with me. I'm looking up articles about this author from my desk chair. Okay, like right now I'm in bed, but normally my desk chair. And he didn't even have access to history books. For all the drawbacks of the information age, there are some niceties that we take for granted too, I guess. Anyway, in short, Howard didn't have the material needed for historical research. By creating a timeless setting, a vanished age, and by carefully choosing names that resembled human history, Howard avoided the problem of historical anachronisms. When the time came to make a film based on the writings, the director originally knew nothing about Conan the Barbarian. He signed on a direct because he always wanted to make a Viking movie. Since my next track is also only tenuously connected to Viking games, now seems like a good time to play it. From the trainer to the Amiga game, Spike in Transylvania, composed by WOTW or Warrior of the Wind from the group Suplex, this track is called Intro Number 35. programs that modify the memory of computer games, thereby changing its behavior. 
they use the game's addresses and values in order to allow cheating. For example, the trainer could freeze a memory address, preventing the game from lowering or changing the information stored at that specific memory address. For example, the health or ammo, something like that. It's really not too dissimilar from how Game Genie affects console. In the 80s and 90s, trainers were often integrated straight into the actual game by cracking groups. When the game was first started, the trainer loaded first, asking the player if they wanted to cheat, and which cheats they wanted to be enabled. The embedded trainers came with intros about the groups which released the game. I very, very briefly talked about Crackthroat in the pilot episode, and I'm unfortunately going to punt again, but at least you know I'm willing to keep coming back and revisiting it. Anyway, so-called trained games were marked with either a number or one or more plus signs. It was basically used to indicate how many options or cheats were included in the trainer. For example, this particular game trainer is called Spiky Plus Two. It comes with two options, the ability to toggle unlimited lives and unlimited energy. This intro music was used in several different trainers, and I'm wondering if maybe that's why it has the C64 stylings. I suppose if it was going to be across different platforms, it would make sense to have it in sort of the lowest common denominator as far as hardware requirements. As for old Spikey, critics were lukewarm. It's an arcade-style adventure game, and there are a series of object-based puzzles. And by that, I mean get the green key for the green door. The reviewers didn't seem to mind, but many described it as simple. And also, as I'm reading a review for this game in the September 1992 edition of Amiga Action Magazine, coincidentally, I see that on the same page is a review for another Viking game that I had overlooked. Called simply Eric, I'm now making a note to check it out before Vikings 2. I've actually seen some pretty cool Viking relics myself. In 2014, my wife and I took a trip to Oslo and Stockholm. While we were in Norway, we visited Big Day, and I hope I got kind of close with the pronunciation. It's a peninsula on the western side of Oslo, and it's the home of five national museums. Also, from my memory, I think a ton of different ambassadors' homes were there. There's also a royal estate. And as another side note, from my observations, Norwegians love trampolines. There were like so many houses with trampolines there, it was unbelievable. I'm sorry if I offended any Norwegian listeners with that foul stereotype about Norwegians and trampolines. I didn't think I would be that guy, but I guess it's easy to fall into a bad habit. One of the museums we visited was the Viking Ship Museum. The main attractions there are the Osberg ship, the Gokstad ship, and the Tun ship. Also, probably not pronouncing those great. Each of the ships were discovered in burial mounds, and I think all three were found on farms, actually. The Osberg ship in particular is commonly acknowledged to be one of the finest artifacts to have survived from the Viking era. It was pretty cool to see something that was like a thousand years old and had been kept in such great shape. You could see all these really intricate carvings and embellishments and like a couple like small statues and stuff. It was really cool. If anyone's interested, I'll see if I can dig up some of my pictures and post them on the blog, but you can also find uh, pretty readily pictures of it online. Also, there's a kind of charming video trailer for the museum itself that I'm going to link to on the uh, blog post. I mentioned at the top of the show that a lot of the soundtracks for Viking games are very much moody soundscapes. This next track doesn't really fit that description, but it doesn't really present as very Viking-y either. I'll call this the Fusion Asian Viking Pure Moods track. From the game Palmdahl on the Sega CD, composed by Martin Iveson, this is track 4. Thank you. 
Heimdall is an action-adventure game developed by Eighth Day and published by Core Design for DOS, Amiga, and the Atari ST in early 1992. The song I'm playing came from a later port to the Sega Mega CD in early 1994. The game is set in the world of Vikings and Norse mythology. Loki steals Odin's sword, Freyr's spear, and Thor's hammer, rendering them powerless. They decide to create an infant, the title character named after the god of the same name, who must bring back the three legendary weapons. The Old Norse version of the god's name is Heimdallr with an R on the end. According to mythology, Heimdallr is depicted as a handsome man with golden teeth. So basically Flava Flav. That Viking hat he wore makes a little more sense now, doesn't it? As for the gold teeth, Eddie Plain, the owner of Eddie's Gold Teeth in Atlanta, Georgia, has been dubbed the Godfather of Grills and is considered to be one of the pioneers of the trend. He brought the idea to New York and first fitted Flava Flav with gold. It's probably impossible to say who did it first, but other early adopters include Rahim the Dream and Kilo Ali. Heimdall is the nemesis of Loki and is the watchman of the gods. He lives at the entry to Asgard, where he guards Bifrost, the Rainbow Bridge. Heimdall carries the Ringing Horn, Gjallar Horn, which can be heard throughout Heaven, Earth, and the Lower World. It was believed that he would sound the horn to summon the gods when their enemies, the giants, drew near at Ragnarok, the end of the world of gods and men. Before I go, I also wanted to mention the Havermal, or the words of Odin the High One. The book is a collection of Old Norse poems from the Viking Age and a source of several wonderful Viking pearls of wisdom. From the invigorating, where you recognize evil, speak out against it, and give no truces to your enemies. And also, generous and brave men live the best. To the pretty gross. The speech of a maiden should no man trust, nor the words which a woman says, for their hearts were shaped on a whirling wheel and falsehood fixed in their breasts. Hmm. And perhaps my favorite Old Norse proverb isn't in the Havamal, but I'm going to read it now anyway. It says, A cleaved head no longer plots. The last track today is the most Viking gamey. I think you'll get what I'm talking about when we play it. It's also the most modern game I've ever played on the show. Released in 2016, the game is out on PC and the PlayStation 4. But before I go, as always, special thanks to Alan Euler, aka Periodical, for mixing and editing the show. You can follow the show at thedietpresents.blogspot.com, and you can subscribe via your favorite podcatcher. And go ahead and throw me a rating on iTunes if you want. It helps out, I'm told. I don't know how. I just know it gets me out there to the masses. I need to be out to the masses. You can follow me on Twitter at the Dyad, and you can email me at thediadpresents at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page you can find by the name of the podcast or at the Dyad, and now there's even a Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash group slash the Dyad Presents. And man, oh man, Ashevitz, I've got to stop doing these super, super long episodes. I know as a podcast consumer, whenever the host complains about doing a long episode, I'm always like, I like the long episodes. But as someone who's on the other end making it, uh, I got to knock it off because there's no way I can keep doing this. It's going to kill the show, make it bi-weekly if I keep going on for, yeah, it's like almost a half an hour, just my sweet, sweet voice. Anyway, I'll try and reel myself in next episode. Until next time, from the game Viking Squad, for the PlayStation 4, composed by A Shell in the Pit, and that's a single composer, by the way, this is Cathedral. <laughs>